I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, the good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like you know grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. Hey, this week we're talking with Hannah Bowman. Um, she is the <laughs> she's the webmaster of uh, <laughs> Christians for the Abolition of Prison, uh, which is a cool website that has lots of really good um, resources on it for you to talk with your um, church friends and uh, parishioners, I guess, um, about prison abolition. So um, it's a cool interview. Hannah has a lot of uh, very good and interesting takes that are theologically savvy and politically good. <laughs> I don't know. I was going to say woke, <laughs> but I feel like that's not a word I want to use ever again. Yeah, that's um, probably right. Anyways, yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, you can check out uh, her website and the whole project that she's got going there at uh, christiansforabolition.org. All right, I'll throw it over to Hannah. This week we're talking with Hannah Bowman, who is with Christians for the Abolition of Prisons, a really exciting project that we didn't really know that much about until fairly recently we listened to an episode that she did with another podcast, Theology and Socialism, which is really neat. And we're intrigued by that. And she engaged with us a little bit on Twitter and uh, thought it'd be a good opportunity to keep talking about uh, prison abolition, which is something we've we've sort of touched on a few times um, in the podcast. So maybe just to start, Hannah, could you just introduce yourself? Who are you? Uh, what do you do? And maybe just, you know, give us an idea for somebody who's never heard of you, uh, what you're up to. Sure. Um, I'm very glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So um, as you said, I'm Hannah Bowman. My day job is actually in book publishing. I'm a literary agent with Liza Dawson Associates. If you Google me, that's what you're going to find. Um, And then I have this side passion in kind of the whole confluence of theology, prison abolition, what it is that Christians are doing in prisons, and what the gospel says about prisoners. So I do some on-the-ground work volunteering. I am a religious volunteer in the L.A. County jails with an organization out of the Episcopal Diocese of Los Angeles. That's not abolitionist work, right? That's more standard prison ministry work, but it is 
being in proximity with incarcerated people. I'm interested generally in restorative justice work and those kinds of projects. You know, I write to people in prison. So I got interested in the criminal justice reform, prison reform, confluence of that with religion uh, about five years ago. And then at the same time, as I read and learned more about it, got really convicted about abolition as a response to prisons instead of reform. And obviously that is something that people disagree about, that there are people, I think, in good faith who want to make prisons better. But I became convinced that for a variety of reasons that I think we'll get into a little bit later, prisons as they exist do not do what we need them to do. And so they need to be abolished, that it is possible to envision a world without prisons, and that there are strong, specifically Christian theological reasons to do so, and, and specifically Christian theological framings. And so as a person who was, you know, a lay person, but interested in theology, I saw a gap um, in what was being done in the church, where there was a lot of talking about criminal justice reform, mass incarceration, prison reform. I know a lot of people who are very opposed to privatization of prisons, but there was a need to kind of pull it all together in, I think, a theological abolitionist framework. So that's how I got into this. Uh, that's very cool. Um, that's nice to hear the story. Uh, you know, how this emerges from a layperson is um, also very inspiring, I think. Um, okay, well, you also started an organization called Christians for the Abolition of Prisons. Can you tell us a little bit about that, too? Yes. Yeah, so right now, Christians for the Abolition of Prisons is basically me and a website. Um, <laughs> the reason you haven't heard of us for long is that it's we're very new. This is something I started up last summer while my daughter was napping, right? Um, and I'm excited to see what happens. But as I said, I feel like there's been this missing piece in the mainline church where um, mainline churches are very good at doing advocacy that's kind of in line with the zeitgeist. And there's certainly a new zeitgeist against mass incarceration that everybody wants to be involved in, but that nobody was quite making the jump to abolition. And so I thought this is a spot where, and again, I've read a fair amount about this. I have been immersed in sort of prison abolitionist circles, but those tend to be um, activist circles that are not associated with Christianity necessarily or not explicitly. Um, and outside of the Mennonite churches and some of the peace churches, you see very little abolitionist thought discussed publicly in the church. And so I thought this is something that there's a need for to do um, we're starting with kind of education for the church, right? Specifically for the kind of rich, white, left-wing mainline church. That's my people. That's my community that I'm comfortable with, where I see the need to say, what does it look like to have this liberating paradigm shift about abolition? Because for me, the movement to an abolitionist framework was really a liberating thing because it was really a way of saying, I'm going to stop trying to make this work. I've been trying to make this concept of prisons fit with my understanding of the gospel, with my understanding of justice, and I don't need to do that. I can say, oh, there's a way of understanding gospel-centered justice that is opposed to prisons, that is a new and different and totally restorative and liberating way. That's like a theological epiphany that was very liberating for me and has really shifted how I look at everything else. And so I'm hoping to provide education that will help other people have that same experience. So we started, I say we, again, it's mostly me, 
Um, we started with a website, that being a way to kind of gather materials. And what we have on our website is a number of educational materials, you know, a lot of writing um, with introducing these basic concepts of what is the theology behind prison abolition, some educational materials like Bible studies, um, a blog with occasional updates, and then reading lists, right? Great online articles, books. I've been collecting a lot of the material that I have studied to to share, hopefully. And what I would really like to see is for this to um, expand into something bigger. You know, my dream would be to have chapters of Christians for Abolition in every church, right? I've been thinking about the fact that every church says, well, you have to have a Sunday school program, but every church doesn't think, oh, we need to have a restorative justice program as just as essential a part of our ministry. And I really believe it is because I believe that justice is part of the work of the church as a Christian community, as a real as, as really the body of Christ in the world. So I would love to see some of this material be kind of shared and brought in as additional people find our organization and are interested and are able to go to their congregations and say, here's what this is about. I'm actually presenting on abolition to my own church uh, this week, and I'm really excited in an adult education context to be able to say to my community, here's what this is and why it's important to me. So that's um, the goal of the organization. and. As I said, we're just starting out with, we're starting with what I was able to do, which is writing and educational materials and some of the theological background for it. And then I'm hoping as people get interested, we'll see where it goes. Yeah, I love that. Uh, everything you're saying is so inspiring and a nice kind of fresh voice, I think, of the podcast because we tend to be a bit crabby, I think. Um, but it's good to have that enthusiasm and, uh, you know, that that ambition and, and significant dream of, of having a... Um, you know, a real sort of like taken for granted position of restorative justice. Um, I, I want to ask, I mean, you addressed this just a little bit, but maybe I could ask you to say a bit more about it. Um, the audience that you have of mainline Protestants is a really interesting thing and something that stuck out to us. Um, you mentioned, you know, there's kind of an accidental reason for that just by virtue of that's the community that you're a part of. Um, but I'm curious to hear, do you find that there are some significant barriers that are somewhat unique to mainline Protestants coming to an abolitionist perspective or what kinds of resources are you putting together in hopes of, you know, making contact with certain things uh, with that demographic? Yeah. So what I think is interesting is that the barriers in the mainline church, I think, are very different than in the like more conservative evangelical world. And I should specify here that I'm talking specifically about white churches. Um, I think things that are being done in the black church are very different and there's much more kind of coordinated activism in that community. And I know there's a great new book, Rethinking Incarceration by Dominique Gilliard, which I just finished reading, which is written for more the sort of black evangelical community. Um, and there's more of a history of this, of abolition coming out of that space. What's been interesting to me in considering the mainline is I think on the evangelical side, I think there's really a retributive tendency, a retributive theology that you have to push back against. That's where you see more of your like Donald Trump supporting law and order kind of rhetoric. Um, and that is certainly difficult to push abolition in, in that context, but it's, it's a different kind of response that is required. In the mainline, what was frustrating to me and what has been frustrating to me is that the mainline is so involved in social justice, but also I think particularly the white kind of rich Protestant mainline congregations have so much social capital that it's difficult to think about taking 
what one could call revolutionary action, right? By which I don't mean, you know, overturning society entirely, but really fundamentally rethinking how its institutions function. And I don't think the mainline is very good at that because the mainline likes to be, you know, the Democratic Party at prayer, right? And sort of very comfortable with um, incremental movement towards social justice, but not necessarily with thinking things are, our society is really not the way God dreams the world to be. So what frustrated me is that everybody who I know in the mainline will say, yes, prisons are awful and our prisons are too punitive. Our prisons are not rehabilitative enough. What we need is prisons like Norway, or what we need is to get rid of private prisons or various solutions, which I know from the research I've done on the issue are not going to be sufficient to solve the problem. Um, but that nobody was had quite made that leap to what if we really thought about being liberated from prisons? What if we really thought of the gospel as liberating us from the need for punishment? Or at least that that was not something that had come up that is discussed publicly, that publicly the mainline will do social action in a way that is absolutely tied into what is feasible. And I think what the gospel calls us to is also to think about the things that don't yet seem feasible, to, to have a, a revolutionary imagination. And that's part of what was missing. And I do think in the Protestant mainline, part of the challenge is that there has not been within the past you know, few decades, a really deep theological tradition. There has been, I think, a lot of movement away from some of the maybe more difficult concepts of Christian theology. And I'm generalizing here and maybe not being entirely fair, because obviously there are great churches that are doing that work. But I think on the level of national denominations, there's a tendency to say, we don't want to upset anybody. Let's not take any action that's going to drive people further away. Let's not have theology that's going to be polarizing or drive people further away from our churches because we're already worried about our numbers dropping. And what I want to do is push back against that challenge and that kind of position to say, what we need is a radical proclamation of the gospel. And I believe that prison abolition is the radical proclamation of the gospel that our churches need right now. And I believe that we mainly, mostly left-wing, mainline Christians are well-placed to make that leap, that it's it's doable for us. Um, as a Methodist, I really like what you said about mainline Protestant denominations being like the Democrats at prayer. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's an extremely good take. I love that. Um, I'll tell my church that next time. <laughs> See how they feel. Um, yeah, I think that's a really, uh, I mean, uh, knowing your audience is really important. And I think kind of um, jumping on the social justice energy of mainline Protestant denominations and trying to push them is a really good strategy. Um, I mean, in my experience, it always feels like uh, mainline Christian churches, yeah, they don't want to like, they don't want to say anything too radical or too polarizing because they have this like weird belief that there's like a million like uh, invisible conservatives out there who are just waiting to come to a church who doesn't upset just them waiting. or something. Yes. <laughs> but or, they but or, they never materialize for some reason. Or I do think there is a serious sense that there are many invisible conservatives within the congregations yeah. who maybe don't talk to me, right? Because they know how I feel. Um, but the, I do think there's there's a there's a real emphasis, and it's not a bad thing, but there's a real emphasis on reconciliation in the mainline church, which I think is not entirely thought through. Yeah. And so there's, there's an emphasis on, we need to get along. 
And sometimes that can overtake our ability to say things. And I actually, as a restorative justice practitioner, I believe that reconciliation is really important, but I also believe it's really difficult. And I don't think we obtain it in our churches by trying to avoid conflict. And, you know, you mentioned the Methodists, and I think what we're seeing happening in the Methodist church right now, which is really painful, is also really necessary work because saying, let's just keep the status quo and hope that we can all stay united is not working, right? And if we can get to a deeper honesty where we can say, look, we can deeply disagree about whether it's issues of sexuality or issues of prisons and what justice looks like, being able to have those conversations and work towards justice is the first step towards that sort of reconciliation. So I think that's difficult. And so we tend not to want to do it. Yeah, totally. Well, um, a little bit of a different question, I guess, shifting gears a bit more. Uh, on the Theology and Socialism podcast, um, we heard you reference a few historical cases where Christians found themselves on the side of prison abolition. And uh, given the sort of lack of theological tradition that there might be, um, we were wondering if you could kind of help us contextualize prison abolition historically and like where Christians fall into that history. So I think the history of Christians and prison is complicated, right? And again, I mentioned Dominique Gilliard's book, which is one I just read. Another great book is Lee Griffith's The Fall of the Prison. And both of these have chapters dealing with the complexity of the ways Christians have been involved with and co-opted by the prison system. So you do see abolitionist traditions. I just read a wonderful book by Will Campbell, who was a Baptist minister involved in the civil rights movement and then got very involved in prison abolition in the 70s. You do see groups that are working even today um, to do that. The The No Exceptions Prison Collective in Tennessee is really doing the work. So you do see groups often that are grassroots organizations working with prisoners and their families that are starting to do this advocacy. And again, I think it's that theological narrative has not been more broadly accepted in the mainline church. Historically, you had all these reform efforts being done by Christians, many of which worked really terribly. So solitary confinement was basically invented by Christians in the uh, Eastern State Penitentiary. And they said, instead of using corporal punishment and being brutal, what if we had these places that were prisons as places of penitence where people could sit in silence and prayer and come to repentance and return to Jesus? And it was intended to be a more humane and more restorative alternative, but it worked within the power structures of the prison, and so it became deeply harmful, right? We've, we now know that solitary confinement is a form of torture, and they figured out pretty quickly that people were going crazy in these um, situations, in these cells. And we see this in chaplaincy, where Christians get involved in the work of prisons because they want to improve material conditions for prisoners, and they come in to bring spiritual goods, but also to really have compassion upon prisoners, but then they get co-opted into being part of the institution. There was a story a couple of years ago about a prison chaplain in the federal prison system who was facing a real crisis of conscience because the federal prison system, that the chaplains are employees, and they decided to require all employees of the prison to carry weapons in the, in the institution. And he felt that his faith would not allow him to carry weapons. And because of that, they would not allow him to go inside and do his job working directly with the people who were incarcerated. And so I think you see that tension that in order to have access and be able to do tremendous good that can be done by working in proximity to people inside prisons. You have to be able to work within the institution as it exists. And we've seen that Christians have often been in that position and then have often had 
bad theology that has made that worse, right? Theology that's saying what we want to do is preach to you that you should repent because you are a sinner. What we want to do is is bring um, real litanies of pet penitence into you in these institutions that aren't necessarily based on solidarity on on really visiting Jesus in the prisoner, even though what Jesus tells us is not that we are standing in his place when we go to visit prisoners, but rather that we are visiting him because he is the one in prison. Yeah, uh, I think it's really helpful that you draw it out that way, you know, that Christianity has this kind of ambiguous role in the history of prisons, both in some of the the logic of incarceration itself, and then this kind of weird ambiguity within prisons as they are now, and then, you know, this other kind of option that you're trying to advocate for, this uh, these Christian reasons for abolition. Um, we've talked with a really interesting scholar, Vincent Lloyd, a couple of times on the podcast, uh, once about prison abolition and some research that he was doing, and um, he really... I think clues us into this like uh, strange struggle that's cut through Christianity where carceral logic is dependent on Christian thinking about people and uh, repentance and penitence and punishment, etc. Um, so, you know, do you think that would it be fair to characterize Christians for the abolition of prisons as a kind of like Christian answer to a Christian problem? I mean, is there something really meaningful specifically maybe about Christians turning against a system that was ostensibly invented by Christians for Christian reasons. You know, how can Christians kind of dismantle um, their own sort of logics that, that have created these material situations? I think so. And I think that's why, for me, this is primarily a theological problem. Because you see these uses of Christian theology and of elements of Christian theology that I think are deeply important and that are deeply important in my personal faith, which are being used to uphold these unjust systems. And I think that's why we have to provide an alternate theology, a way of saying, this is not what our theology is. So here are a couple of examples. Um, the the Christian theological logic that often underlies prisons, there are a couple of, of emphases, I think, and one of them is this idea of the universality of sin, right? The idea that crime is sin and the response to sin is God's wrath or that we have to repent in order to um, get good with God. And that is certainly a system, um, Dominic Gilliard talks about it as a merit meritocratic system of morality, which is established by Christianity and historically has been. I think it's wrong theology, but it has historically been part of Christian theology. And then the other thing that has been used, and I suspect this is what uh, you talked about with Vincent Lloyd, is this idea of penal substitution, right, of substitutionary atonement, which I think is a central part, certainly historically, of Christian theology, of the idea that Jesus died for our sins as something that is used to establish a punitive system because it assumes one. The idea being that that theology assumes that God needed to punish us and therefore Jesus took the punishment, but also that the way of the world is that God punishes sin and so we should also punish sin and crime in this way. And I, I mentioned both of those theologies because what I think is interesting is that there is, and I think always has been, an alternate theological tradition in the church that we can reclaim in those specific ways, right? So you talk about the universality of sin as something that leads to a, a meritocratic view of morality or the idea that people get what they deserve. And yet at the same time, I think about, I have at times been in the Lutheran tradition, and I think about Martin Luther's claim that we are all simultaneously saint and sinner. And the idea for me, that has become very profound is that we can't divide the world into good people and bad people because, uh, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn writes, the line between good and evil crosses through every human heart. And that, to me, is essential to our understanding of 
prison abolition, because part of what we're saying is that no one is disposable, that we can't make ourselves safe by finding the bad people, the sinners, and banishing them to prisons. But instead, we have to look at the human condition as one of sinfulness, which means that all of us are in the same boat and that the people who have committed great harm are nonetheless part of the human family and are nonetheless people who we can approach the same way as we would want to be approached or as we would approach our own sin in in terms of repentance, making amends and being restored to community. So that's one example. The question of the atonement and the role of substitution in the atonement is another one that I think it's really important for us to reclaim because it has been used in this very harmful way to set up justification for punishment, right? Even even recently, you'll see people justify capital punishment on the basis that, well, God killed Jesus for our sins, uh, which I think is a horrific misreading because what I have found to be deeply meaningful, and this is something I initially got from Morgan Guyton, who is a Methodist pastor who wrote about this, and it's become really central to my own theology and my abolitionism, is this idea that Jesus' substitution for us on the cross is an essential part of Christian theology, but that what it means is the end of punishment eternally and therefore also temporally. So I do believe in substitutionary atonement. I do believe that Christ died on the cross bearing the penalty for all the sins of the world and for our sins. And what that means is that there is no more punishment, just like Jesus' death and resurrection means there is no more death. And we think of that in the context of our celebration of Easter. His punishment means there is no more need for retribution in justice because retribution is a natural desire in when harm has been done it 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 is i think a wrong desire or a desire that we as a society put to wrong ends but it is a natural understanding to say when i have been hurt something is owed to me and to turn that back on the person who did the harm and so i really believe that the cross uproots and transforms that cycle of violence, that it breaks in and ends that cycle of violence by saying, instead of turning the harm that was done to me back on the person who did it, it is turned onto onto Jesus. And that ends the cycle, gets rid of the need for retribution, that in some real sense, when you feel that something is owed by the harm that has been done to you, that that has been, that debt has been paid. And the payment of that debt is a solid foundation for accountability that is free from punishment, from for letting go entirely of the retributive impulse so that our justice can be entirely about making amends and restoring things to as right a situation as possible. And I push that line, which is not popular in the mainline church, because I think the mainline church has, for good reasons and for the kinds of, because of the kinds of harm that have been done by substitutionary atonement, has moved away from that understanding of the atonement. And I do tend to lean on it because I think that while it's also important to emphasize the radical love and the forgiveness of God and the role of grace and how that should play out in our justice, I think also that being able to address the human desire for retribution in a very concrete way, as the atonement does, is one of the theological gifts of our tradition that now we can say on solid footing, justice can be done without any need for punishment. And I think that's a really radical 
thing in our culture, you know, from the societal level of we sort of assume that somebody has to go to prison. And even liberals are very happy to see Paul Manafort go to prison, right? We assume that somebody has to be punished in order for us to have any sense of justice and to, to not operate with impunity. But we also see that in our much more personal levels and in the ways we talk about raising our children, that we don't necessarily have a way of talking about teaching children that doesn't rely on punishment. And, and that concerns me. And that crosses the liberal conservative line. So I think, I think it's a really liberating thing to be able to say, oh, accountability is not the same thing as punishment. Justice is not the same as punishment. And in fact, in the kingdom of God, there is no more punishment. Uh, that's a really interesting take on substitutionary atonement. I think uh, not one that I've actually heard uh, put just like that before. It's not popular. <laughs> well, that's okay. Um, neither are a lot of things we say about Christianity and socialism. Um, but it's interesting just the same. And um, I think what's, I mean, okay, it's interesting just the same. And that you say it's not popular is really interesting to me because you have all of these resources on the Christians for the Abolition of Prisons website, um, you know, that kind of walk, like they're meant to be educational resources that walk people through these arguments and, and try to explain why they're so important. So um, I wonder how you bring these things up within your own community or with other people. How do you think um, Christians can move from a, reformist position on prisons or even worse to more of like an abolitionist position on prisons? I mean, I really, as I've said, I really think it's a theological problem, right? And not exclusively, but I do really believe that, I believe that theology can change people. I really do believe in the power of the gospel in that sense. And so I believe that if we can teach these things, people will learn them. So as I mentioned, I'm, I'm teaching some of exactly what we were talking about here uh, in my own congregation this week. And I'm, I'm curious to see how that will, will work in the community I'm part of. I think a lot of people in my own congregation know that I have these convictions and, and, you know, we, we talk around the edges of them as they come up. And, and I do think people are not entirely comfortable with them and that's okay. Right. I think, um, this kind of paradigm shift does take time. I, I have put up these educational resources. I am only beginning to know of people using them or starting to think about using them now. So I'm not sure that they have been tested. I certainly would encourage people if you're interested, I would love it for you to use these resources. Um, I would love to know how they work in practice, right? Because I have not my group together to do these Bible studies and I only have a view of it from the inside. So if that, that is an invitation to all your listeners to say, if you're interested, if you want to walk through this four week Bible study, then please send me an email and tell me what's working and what's not working. And we can make changes because I want to be responsive to what people's needs are. But in terms of moving from a reformist to an abolitionist position, I think there are three points two of which really go together and are not necessarily Christian theological and then sort of the theological piece. So the two things that I think are most essential and that helped move me from a reformist to an abolitionist position were to recognize simultaneously that prisons as they are designed will never do what we want them to and that there are other options that work. So to talk about how they never do what we want them to, I think you always get this sense that we desire prisons to be rehabilitative places. We desire them to be truly correctional institutions. And can't we just make them better to make that happen? And what really convinced me was reading about the fact that essentially if you look at what is necessary for 
rehabilitation, prisons are designed to be the opposite of that. So for example, the most important thing, if you're talking about rehabilitation, is to build on existing relationships in the community. That's how you can get people to change, is along relationships they have. And in particular, people's relationships with their family and in particular with their children are the most important things. When you look at why people want to stop doing crime, right, and get their lives together, they say, I want to be a better parent to my children. People are really driven by that. And yet what we do in prisons is we say, first, we have to separate you from the community. We have to move you apart. We have to take you away from your children, even though in other contexts, we see family separation as one of the most traumatic things you can do for both parent and child. But we say, we have to take you away from your children. We have to take you away from the relationships of everyone you are closest to. We build prisons far away from society. We put up barriers because of the way we've constructed institutions so that for security, we have to make it difficult for people to get in, difficult to visit, so that it's hard for people to maintain contact with their families. It's hard to visit. It's hard to get letters in and out. It's hard to talk on the phone. All of these barriers, which are intrinsic to the idea of the prison, right, as a place where we have separated people, um, are making rehabilitation harder. They are fundamentally opposed because rehabilitation happens in community. And then we see that the kinds of education or solidarity within the community that, that builds up within the prison are also discouraged. So education tends to be underfunded. That's because of the retributive impulse, which is always going to be against the rehabilitative impulse because rehabilitation involves investing in people. And the impulse for punishment has us say, why should we give those people education? Why should we give them food? Why should we give them decent conditions when they deserve the punishment they're getting? It's not supposed to be fun, right? And so that works against rehabilitation because rehabilitation requires investment as well as requiring proximity and community. And then we even discourage solidarity and the building of helpful community. And there's a real tension because you see in prisons that they want to have programming that's going to encourage a more helpful or healthy community among the people who are incarcerated. But at the same time, unfortunately, solidarity and organizing are seen as threats to security because the security of the institution depends on maintaining power over people by keeping them isolated. And so even when the prisons themselves would like to be establishing a, a more functional or more peaceful community in their walls, the fact is that the kinds of solidarity building, organizing for each other's good and for the common good that prisoners could be doing, taking that kind of agency is, is a threat that goes against the very um, security for which the institution is founded. And that's not because of bad actors in the prison system. That's because of the way the system exists. It is not designed to do that kind of accountability, that kind of relational work that needs to be done with people who have committed harm. And so that was what convinced me that prisons could not be reformed, right? That the, the, the whole design of the institution doesn't work. And anything, by the time you talk about what could you do that would, that would really work for rehabilitation, that would really be designed to fit the goals you have, it's not going to look like a prison because the act of separating people and pulling them out of the community is antithetical to that work. At the same time, I learned more about restorative justice, about the idea that we could have responses to harm that are not just throwing people in prison, that are not punishment, but that are nonetheless meaningful accountability, that nonetheless 
recognize that there is a debt owed by violence or harm, that nonetheless recognize that we have to make amends, that recognize that people have to change, and that that can be done in community. And you don't see a lot of it because restorative justice programs tend to be small pilot programs and not talked about a lot, but you have, but we have seen it work. There's a great program in New York called Common Justice, which is a diversion program. They work with the district attorney's office in the case of violent crimes. And their founder, Danielle Sered, has just written a wonderful book I'm reading right now called Until We Reckon, which is about dealing with violence in community and understanding it as something we can deal with through restorative processes. And when these processes are done, they are harder honestly, then submitting to punishment because they require people who have done harm to really grapple with those effects and make amends for them. And that sort of active participation is much harder than just going off to prison at some level and thinking, continuing to think you've done nothing wrong. So those two things, I think, are essential to the movement from reformism to abolitionism is to say prisons are not working, but there are other options because prison abolition is not just about saying, let's open the doors and let everybody out and forget about public safety. It's about saying, how can we create alternative community structures that will make prisons unnecessary? It's really about doing work in community so that we can keep one another safe without relying on prisons. So those are the two non-theological side. The theological side is to add to it the, the whole Christian tradition that can support that this work. And that's everything from Christian support for reconciliation and restorative justice, but also dealing really seriously with Jesus' promise that the prisoners will be set free in the kingdom of God. And that the first thing Jesus says in Luke chapter four, when he starts his ministry, is that he has come to proclaim freedom for prisoners. And if we take that as a real promise of God, it is a very challenging thing for us. So I have a friend who says essentially that she is a prison abolitionist because Jesus says so. It's not necessarily a natural thing. It's not a natural inclination, but it is something, it is a command of Jesus. And it's not us saying, hey, you have to find a way to do without prisons. It's Jesus saying that. And I think we have to deal seriously. If we take Jesus seriously, and if we take the gospel seriously, we have to deal seriously with the fact that, as as Will Campbell says, the good news of God in Jesus is freedom for the prisoner. And that's real, literal freedom. It's not just a metaphor. And we like to spiritualize it away. So I think that theological argument is compelling. And that's really the basis of all of our Christian theological arguments is Jesus promises a world without prisoners. Prisons are part of the power of death in the Bible. And Jesus promises that he has overcome death and hell and and overcome the prison. And we're participating in this work that God is doing. And then as a secondary, but I think equally important point is the idea that Yes, there is no more need for retribution and punishment, and that's what makes this kingdom of God based on freedom possible. Yeah, um, all the theology I think is really fascinating. Uh, one thing that we sort of joke about on this podcast is that like we're not theologians, um, so we're <laughs> we always are appreciative when someone can kind of like fill in a bit of those gaps for us. Um, I'm I'm really interested too in what you're saying here, and I want to hear you talk a little bit more about um, community and how Christians can kind of think of different ways of putting their communities together. Um, this is kind of like a left field question, but it's on my mind because uh, I had a family member recently go through a trial experience, and my family, many people in my family, are sort of in and out of jails and prison, and uh, it got me thinking. Uh, one thing that was really sort of strange about it is that this particular individual. Um, 
is pretty well known to police and prosecutors in my hometown, which is like a really rural part of Michigan. Uh, but no priest or pastor that I know actually knows that side of my family, despite being involved in, despite the fact that I was involved in church growing up. And uh, it just really sort of struck me, you know, that there, there's a, a strange kind of class division um, where the the job of like putting our communities together is sort of outsourced by churches to police um, and, you know, criminal justice apparatuses, which are ostensibly from a sort of socialist perspective, um, you know, the guardians of, of private property and enforces of a certain kind of understanding of what capitalism is and how it should function kind of smoothly. And I guess I'm curious to hear more about how you think uh, Christians operating in uh, this abolitionist work also might relate to thinking differently about how to organize society more generally. Like this is something Angela Davis is always talking about, that uh, to think about prison abolition also means thinking about, you know, material structures that drive people to what we call crime and also to think about what we designate as crime and what we don't designate as crime. Um, You know, one kind of strange thing about like retribution on the left, uh, I think, is that like People on the left like seeing people like Paul Manafort go to jail and want him to go to jail for longer than he is because there's this sense in which, well, finally, a certain form of justice is happening because somebody who's typically protected or insulated from justice is is actually getting it. And that feels right. It feels like that's what should be happening, right? Um, But uh, as you're talking about it, maybe there are other ways of thinking about it. So I guess all that to say, I'm I'm more curious about thinking through this point about like... uh, what does it mean to say that somebody might be, you know, routinely known by by police and the guardians of capitalism or something like that? Um, and Christians need to figure out another way of of thinking through all of those aspects of society, um, theologically, but maybe more importantly, kind of materially. Yeah, well, so to speak kind of to your first point, I truly think it is a scandal that the church has given up the work of justice to the government. Um, and what I mean by that is not that we should have private church courts, right? I, obviously, we are called to live within the social order and 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 in some sense submit to the established laws, right, for the sake of the common good. But at the same time, I think we have truly disempowered ourselves um, by relying on police and prisons to deal with our conflicts in the church, by relying on the government and say and and disempowering our own community abilities to do justice, because communities have always known how to solve their own problems and do justice. And yet we've said, we can't do this. It has to be done by professionals. It has to be done by the court. It has to be done by police and prosecutors. And to a lesser extent, when you talk about these other material conditions, we can't do that as the church. It has to be done by professionals. It has to be done by mental health professionals or social work professionals or social service organizations, right? We have truly and scandalously abandoned our willingness to be a community that does things in the world. And that I find profoundly upsetting. Um, Because I do think, as you say, all these types of justice are connected. And I'm glad you brought up Angela Davis because her work is so important and foundational to any understanding of prison abolition. And I'm certainly drawing on it because she says we have to build these alternate structures. We have to take down all the structures that are leading to our definition of crime, but also that lead people into doing harm. And I think the work of abolition is 
part of that work of changing material conditions, of recognizing that policing exists to protect private property. And if we as the church take Acts chapter two seriously, we should not be maybe big fans of the protection of private property. We should understand our property as being held for the common good. And so what does it mean to say, I'm not going to call the police if my church gets robbed, right? There are churches in Northern California that have made promises not to call the police, which I think is a very impressive thing to do, to be able to say, we're not going to rely on the violence of the state for the sake of protection of our property or even for the sake of our own safety. We're going to find a different way. So I would love to see the church without denying the need to cooperate, right, with the social structures that exist and with police and courts because we have to cooperate with them. But at the same time, I would love to see the church pursuing this kind of alternate work, both in terms of conflict how we deal with conflicts and harm and how we see ourselves as having a stake in doing that work of dealing with conflicts and harm. We see ourselves as when somebody is known to police and prosecutors that we understand that if they are involved in the church as our problem as a church community, right? And as something we can heal and something we can address and and our responsibility, but also in seeing our work as tied to the broader transformation of society. Again, not that we're going to be able to bring about the kingdom of God by our own power, but that we can work for more justice and we can see ourselves even as lay people in the church as able to make a difference, right? That we as lay people can bring homeless people into our homes. We don't have to wait for an organization to find them housing. That we as lay people can go out and have dinner with people who are in need of food. We don't have to see it as something where we stand on one side of the table and working through an organization that gives them food at a food pantry, that we as lay people can be involved in protecting people, meeting their needs, meeting their need for community when they get out of prison, that we don't have to see it as the job of the parole department or that we don't have to see responding to mental health challenges as something that is only done by professionals. Obviously, there is a role for that sort of professional help, and I and would never suggest that the church should take over that work. But there's also a role for building community. So one of the programs I think is very interesting is a re-entry model called Circles of Support and Accountability, which was started in Ontario and has since spread to various places across the country, across the United States, which is a model which actually deals primarily with those who have committed sexual offenses and helping them in their re-entry and has had tremendous success. The most recent study of the program in Minnesota found that these circles reduced sexual recidivism in this population by 88%. And what they are doing is saying, this is a circle of normal people who circle around this person on their re-entry into the community to meet their needs, to be a pro-social source of support, to provide accountability, not bringing specialized professional skills because they are interfacing with a wider circle of specialized professionals who do that work, but just to be community. And I think we really disempower ourselves when we discount the power of our communities and when we say this has to be done by police, prisons, therapists, social service organizations, that's the only way we can change the world rather than looking at what we can do locally just by being community for one another. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Well, could you say maybe just a few more things about that then? So like, um, it, it seems like that, you know, Christians for, Ab for the Abolition of Prisons um, is oriented towards like consciousness raising and like awareness raising for churches. And I think that seems like a really important part because um, thinking about 
the abolition of prisons is really hard if you can't even imagine another type of justice or you don't have that theological imagination. So like, where do you think that Christians can work locally or even nationally uh, toward the abolition of prisons? Like, where do you think that um, that place is? I think what's challenging about this advocacy is because it is all grassroots, it is all local, and so you get involved in any way you can, right? And what I have found with Christians for Abolition and part of why I want to do this work of raising revolutionary imagination as a starting point is that if we wanted to do direct advocacy work, I don't think we could start without more of a base of support, right? And as people get interested in the work we're doing and want to get more involved, I think we may find advocacy campaigns arise. But the sort of model that I have seen a lot in churches of this is a terrible problem, so you should write letters to your congressman, and there's nothing else you can do but write letters to Congress, I find very disempowering. So I'm more interested in a model that says, let's imagine new ways of being involved, whatever they look like. So it can be everything from advocacy, policy advocacy, right? You should write to your members of Congress. Uh, what does it look like to go lobby for bills? Learn what the ACLU is doing. Learn what prison abolitionist grassroots organizations in your area are doing and what bills they care about. So I know here in California, we have a number of justice organizations that are working on a variety of bills to, to you know, change life sentencing for juveniles, to um, and there's a big campaign in California right now to try to end life without parole. And so you can get involved in the group, in the work that's being done by groups. And I think it's really important, especially when we come into this as relatively affluent white people, to be aware of our privilege and to say, hey, this isn't fundamentally our work. We're maybe not the most closely involved people in the system. And if that's the case, what we should be doing is supporting people who are more close to the problem, who are more closely involved in the system, who maybe are formerly incarcerated or have family members who are incarcerated. And so we take our newfound consciousness and we go and support that work. So that's the advocacy side. I think there's also an element of visiting the prisoner and developing proximity that is essential. So we do need visits, right? Letters. There are people in prison who never receive mail and being able to write to people. Um, and I write to a number of, of men in prison, being able to write to people can be a, a revolutionary act just to say, I see you. I know that you are here to do kind of traditional prison ministry, I think is a very valuable thing. Although some prison ministries operate from an unhelpful theological perspective, nonetheless, finding your way to be in and be with people and worship with people who are incarcerated is a profound thing to do, even though it's not intrinsically abolitionist, but it can, it's nonetheless reaching out to Jesus in those places. And I think it really is trans, I do believe is really transformative. Um, there's also an aspect of it which is about continuing to, to learn and to teach, right, and to reach out and to study in your own communities and to build alternative structures, to look for either practical restorative justice efforts you can do. Is there a victim-offender dialogue program in your area? Is there a circles of support and accountability program you can get involved in to find volunteer opportunities which are really doing practical restorative justice work because that is what we have to build, right? But also to just deepen our ties in our communities, to see our churches not just as places we go on Sundays, but also as deeply tied communities that we look to for our material needs, for our social needs, and to help solve our problems. So that when we're talking about harm, our first instinct isn't to call the police because we feel unsafe, but is to see how we can work things out among ourselves and to see how building those communities, we can keep each other safe. And I think all of that work, even though it seems 
maybe small or maybe like it's not doing abolition work. I think all of that is part of bringing about the work that God is doing and trusting in the work that God is doing through us and through the church and in the world to bring about the abolition of prisons. Yeah. Uh, thanks so much for those recommendations at the end here. I think there's some really good, like a good balance of uh, some practical things people could just do right now after listening to this podcast. Uh, you find also, uh, where you fit, right? Some people right. are called to be in prisons and some people need to do something else and you find where you fit and you do what you can where you are. Yeah, that's great. And having that kind of broad horizon, I think is really important. Um, well, we're, we're coming up at the end of our time. We just wanted to say thanks so much for um, coming in and sharing with us about your project. Uh, we're really excited about it and interested and, and looking forward to seeing where it goes. Um, I guess uh, if people wanted to get involved in Christians for the Abolition of Prisons so that it was more than uh, just you and a website, <laughs> how would you hope or, or suggest that they do so? Uh, I'd be delighted to have you reach out to me because I think a big part of this is I really do believe in the power of connecting people of organizing. And so if you are interested, reach out to me. You can contact me through the website. I want to talk to you. I want to see what we can do. And even if it's just getting to know each other for now so that when the time comes, we're ready to act, right? When the time comes that there is an advocacy opportunity that we can make a difference on. Um, learn more. I really encourage you to look at the resources on the site to see what you can learn, to, to ask questions and interrogate maybe your own assumptions, because I have learned a tremendous amount. And everything on the Christians for Abolition site comes from things that I have learned and want to share. It's not me saying, I'm the expert, listen to me. It's me saying, you know, I was thirsty and I have been fed, right? And this is where I have found that. So all of those books are things that I have read and have found to be profoundly transformative for me in my own faith journey. Um, but please reach out to me also if you have specific needs. If there is a context where you say, I would love to do this, and a few people have done this already, I would love to do this in my church, or I would love to do this, but here are the specifics of what I need, because I am prepared to be very flexible with the kinds of materials. You know, it doesn't have to be, do this four-week Bible study, read this book. If there are things where it would be helpful to you to, to approach it from a different angle, I would like to work with you on developing those materials. So what I would really say is just please, you know, please reach out. We have a newsletter that you can sign up for, which has occasional updates, but also just please reach out to me and let's see what we can build together. Thanks so much. Uh, we'll be sure to direct people to the website. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me on. Uh, obviously, I love talking about this stuff and it's always great to find a new way to share the good news. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can find us on the internet. We have a Patreon that you can support us at at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. We're on Twitter at the Magnificast. Uh, we have an email, the Magnificast at gmail.com. We've got a Facebook group, the Magnificast Basement. Uh, and also check out uh, Hannah's project, um, Christians for the Abolition of Prisons. Uh, it's a really, really great thing, and hopefully more people will get attracted to it, and it'll be able to build uh, some real sustainable um, uh, projects. Uh, our music is by Amaria Armstrong and The Illogical Spoon, and we'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. 
Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry someday There'll be no damn between us and our Lord